the sun is shining, the temperatures are up, and as uh, Pastor Claudette's already reminded us, September is here, and there's some changes of rhythms, there's some changes already, maybe you're a parent and kids are going back to school this week, and uh, maybe you're a student here and, and just about to get started again on uh, another term, uh, but you know, in so many ways, we recognize that the autumn time, as the summer not fades, but kind of moves into autumn. It's certainly for many churches, city churches particularly, it's the start really of a new year. It's a kind of a new church year as we get used to not only the, the changing rhythms of the academic year beginning, but for us, not waiting till January to get ready for all that the Lord wants to do with us in the year ahead. So if you're having some, some kind of changes of season, uh, in, in just the daily rhythms right now, let's just remind one another that God is the God of seasons. He's the God who not only created the rhythm of seasons into our world, but also into our lives. But as we've often been reminded, he's the God who changes seasons. Daniel chapter 2 is the God who changes times and seasons. Wow. That he is the one that is able in our lives to bring us out of one season into another. Sometimes it's a slow change, but he is still nevertheless the God who is faithful to his promises and wants to bring us individually with our families and our church families and the wider body of Christ into new seasons for his glory. Somebody say amen this morning. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to... Philippians chapter 3, the book of Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 7 to verse 16. Read, follow it with me if you can at home or in the building, wherever you are, in the overflow, if you've got a digital version or a, a paper version, an analog one like I have today. Uh, or, or you'd rather just look and listen, but follow it in your heart. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted it loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain from the, the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do. Would you say one thing? One 
one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, why don't you just nudge your neighbor for a moment and say, those of us who are mature, (laughs) those of us who are mature, he says, we all want to be in on that one, don't we? Let all of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. This is Paul's great letter to the Philippian church. And I have a feeling that we see more than just a glimpse of Paul's character here. I want to ask you a question just for a moment. If you could visit, if you could just be transported... I know we're all loving being in KT this morning, but bear with me for a moment, indulge me. If you could go to any church and just kind of sneak in and be a part of it, not just in the world today, right now, but in history, church history, in the Bible, in the New Testament church, I wonder where you'd want to go. I wonder if you might want to be in the Ephesian church, that great towering church in Ephesus, that Paul writes a letter to, or the the fireworks and kind of charismatic uh, gifting of the Corinthian church, or perhaps you'd want to get into the church in Rome that Paul writes about in the final chapter of Romans, chapter 16, where we see this kind of church that started in the center of the Roman Empire, gone all the way from Jerusalem, an outpost of the, 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 the Roman Empire, to, Jerusalem, to Rome itself, to the power base. And there are believers in Jesus in Rome, in chapter 16 of Romans, that he's writing to in houses and in households and going about their business, but living for Jesus. And we get this kind of teasing glimpse of the church in Rome. Or I wonder whether it might be in history to hear John Wesley out in the open air somewhere with 25,000 people in Cornwall or in the southwest outside Bristol. And he barely got out with his life sometimes, a little bit like Paul, but he preached to crowds in the 18th century. And, 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 and the nation was changed, many historians say, by the Wesleyan revival, perhaps fasting, uh, uh, fast-forwarding to the beginning of the Pentecostal revival, you might think about wanting to be in Azusa Street in Los Angeles at the out, kind of the, the, the early beginnings, the springboard of Azusa Street as the Holy Spirit came, beginning of the 20th century, in a new century with power that they might reach the world for Jesus again. Or maybe it would be somewhere else. Perhaps in Wales, I still live in Wales, and Welsh revival touched the globe, as in a little chapel just outside Swansea in Lucker. You can still kind of visit. All kinds of people end up being there and getting let in the chapel where they started for a week of meetings that felt like they were as cold as ice at the start. It felt like pulling teeth to the young evangelist, Evan Roberts. But by the end of the week, 
The Holy Spirit came in in such a way that all of Wales began to hear and respond and, and be changed. I wonder whether you'd want to say it like a man called an Alexander Body, an Anglican vicar from Sunderland, heard about Wales. And he was so desperate for God that he made his way down there. And he said he sat amongst these rough coal miners and people in the valleys of Wales and, and, and was absolutely changed by the presence and the power of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. I wonder where it'd be. Maybe Argentina, Argentina revival, maybe Colombia, maybe, maybe, maybe let's not just do big moves of God. What about a, a church that has a meaning for you? Maybe the place you were saved or baptized or where you went to Sunday school or a youth group and you had an encounter with Jesus. There are still people today there that pray for you, that love you, that are concerned about you. I have a feeling that if we could ask the Apostle Paul, which church of all the churches would you want to be in Sunday morning? I think he'd say the Philippian church. I can't prove it. And the more I've gone into it, the more it's surprised me. We might expect Ephesus or Corinth or Rome. He longed to be in Rome. And now he was in Rome writing this letter. But he's in prison. He's under arrest in Rome writing to Philippi. And Bible commentators tell us that Philippi is a church that is not just a, a, a church that Paul has been involved with, but there's an intimate connection. In fact, in uh, the book of Acts, we read of, of Paul going to uh, Philippi at the beginning. Many of you will remember that story and, and, and we'll, we'll set it in context in a moment or two. But you know, this great letter to the Philippian church is very personal. It's also very joyful. It's been called uh, an epistle of joy. But Paul writes not just with instruction, but out of tender care and relationship. This is a church that began by him under the leading of the Holy Spirit as he led Lydia, a woman convert, an influential woman, a, a wealthy woman, we believe. And she became the first follower of Jesus in Philippi. And they started the church in her house and her household and... and, and not only had they had those beginnings, but the Philippian church from the beginning had been a mission church, a church looking outwards, the first church in Europe. The vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us, that called Paul from frustration in a place called Troas to go to a new continent. That's these guys. And they began with a sense of deep appreciation that the gospel had reached them and it was to go other places. So a sending church, a mission-hearted church and a generous church. We've just given, we've just given in worship and Claudette has encouraged us to see that as, as inseparable from our worship. Philippians not only got that in a general sense, they got it specifically and so they had for many years stood with, in fact, the 10 years or so separating the letter from the beginnings of the church. They'd stood with Paul and they prayed for him and they cared about him and they'd given to him. They'd sent financial support so that he could continue to follow the call of Jesus as a missionary 
and as an apostle to the nations of the world. There's a special bond here. I remember coming to this church back in uh, my mid-twenties, somewhere in the 80s there. Yeah, I really am that old. And I remember being drawn here at a special time in the church and in each of the decades since then, this church has seen remarkable things. People come from all around the world and from near and far in our own nation. And the Lord has brought us here for a season and, 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 and many of you are rooted here. You've been here forever, it seems, and you'll be here till Jesus comes. Hallelujah. But you know, it's special sometimes just to recognize the grace of God that's on a church. And I remember coming in here in the mid-80s and, and others of you were here and, and, and the church was growing phenomenally and Pastor Wynne Lewis, the senior minister at the time, I remember it now, thinking about it, preparing this message over the last few days. And he, he would preach and Wynne was traveling extensively in the UK and around the world as a, 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 being asked to go to many, many places. But this was home church. And in home church, when he was here, he wasn't preaching his favorite message from the road. He wasn't preaching just a, a theme that was topical. He grounded his preaching and teaching in Bible books. I remember 1 Corinthians. As he took us through that book, it took him a year about. Ephesians was one of those. The book of Revelation, well, he only got as far as chapter 5 and said, Lord, deliver me from the book of Revelation. Never let me do that again. But I also remember Philippians. And I remember him taking a year or so to lead us through the book of Philippians. And I remember at times the way that God used that. They knew that Pastor Wynne was not just preaching to us pointedly. He was just preaching what was next in the passage. Maybe he'd been away and two weeks ago he'd left us somewhere. And now before us was opened up the word of God. And we couldn't say, he's getting at me, because it's in the Word. Guys, today I pray that as we go through this chapter in Philippians, in a short period of time, that the Lord will speak to you and me about the words that are before us. I want to invite you, if you have time, sometime during the week, to try and get a little bit of time and read the whole chapter, chapter 3. If you want to go further than that, great. But the whole chapter, just a little bit, it'll take you about 15 minutes to read it slowly. If you want somebody else to read it for you, David Suchet, Poirot from TV fame and movie fame, there's a great app that you can download. It's free. I'm not on commission. I promise you. But David Suchet has an, a, 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 an affiliation with KT years ago. He was attending here. Uh, for a time, but what a voice to read the book of Philippians. So look it up, find the app, and listen to it, and allow the Word of God to begin to penetrate your life. We pray that the Word and the Spirit will get into us today. Not just titles and texts and themes that are topical, but the discipline and depth of going through Scripture and letting verse by verse and word by word and, word and phrase by phrase lead us in discipleship together. So here we are, Acts 16, the Philippian church's birth on Paul's second missionary journey, at first European church. And he's writing to them now, 10 years on from prison, from restriction. He, he's, he's a man with a plan. He's been to nations. He's been to continents. He's been 
fearlessly, and yet not without fear. There's a difference. It's not that he had no fear, but he overcame his fear in trusting Jesus. He's faced so many things. But now, towards the end of his life, he still is living with hope and joy. From the beginning, this church shared a strong missionary vision, and he begins to stir that up again in them and thank them. The prompt seems to be he wants to thank them for supporting him, for being generous, and to encourage them, but also to encourage them in, 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 in the calling of God that is there for everybody, not just for Paul. The calling that they share as followers of Jesus. You know, I was, I was moved in the worship just a little while ago when we were worshipping. And, and there was a phrase that, that uh, the worship team were leading us in in the, the song about us being bearers of the name of Jesus. Wow, that really struck me. It reminded me that in Antioch, they called them Christians first. The outsiders called them Christians, Christ followers, as a, as a name of scorn and mockery. They were given a name, Christ's people, that was loaded then. And I was just reminded there that actually, however we approach that now, we are named as Jesus' people, Christ's. To bear his name. There may be times when we've been embarrassed to be identified with that name. There may be times when we might find it hard to accept the name of Jesus' people. We might find it cringy or difficult or, or awkward or, or dangerous even. But Christ followers, Jesus' people, he owned us and gave us life. Paul begins to open up some of this. We get to in a moment or two. His closest connection, we think, as a church is with the Philippian church. It's been called a letter of joy. William Barclay, the Scots uh, a theologian, a writer, no longer uh, alive, but his books are out there, said that this is a book of indestructible joy. Wow. Not just surface deep, not just kind of emotional, but it's, it's of a joy like no other. That even in the toughest of times in Paul's life and what he's been through and that the churches are going to go through, that there is a joy that enables you to live differently and to live the life. This is not just about a superficial emotional thing. We've heard over the years about joy. Actually, the word rejoice comes up again and again and again in this letter. Rejoice in the Lord always and again, I say rejoice. And as I'm saying it to you, I've got songs going on inside my heart from singing it over the years. Some people talk about a deep joy. The problem is often it's so deep it never comes out. The older I get, the more I, I, I'm drawn to certain TV programs. Gardener's World, I never thought I would be that person. Antiques Roadshow, be careful what you say now. 
An antiques roadshow, it never ceases to amaze me that in the UK, they take along some object from Granny's attic or from their own garage or something they bought at a, at a, at a car boot sale. And the expert gets to the moment of saying, well, now, how much is it worth? And, and you can see them waiting, and, and he, he says, well, this, how much did you pay for it? 50 pounds. Okay, how much do you think it's worth? Oh, I, I don't know. And they've, they've been looking online, but you know they have. But they're just waiting. And then they'll say, he, he will say, or she will say, actually, I, I want to tell you, this is worth 20,000 pounds. And they go, oh. In some other cultures, I want to suggest to you, they wouldn't just go, oh. They would go, oh. <laughs> there would be a reaction and response. And sometimes I just have to hold my head up and say, I wish I wasn't such an Englishman. That my deep joy was kind of so stifled and filtered that it barely comes out. Not superficial or meaningless, but real joy going through. Is it possible, as Paul writes to the Philippian church and he's writing to us, that we might have our lives grounded in such a joy? It's not flippant, it's not trivial. It's not just words, but it's something that comes out that feeds us with life, with hope, with kindness, with forgiveness, with overcoming life that we don't have of ourselves, but it comes from being rooted in Jesus. That's where we're going even these, over these next few minutes. A practical letter. Jack Hayford talks about it having victorious joy. I like both of those, indestructible and victorious. How many of us want to be victorious this morning? We don't feel indestructible. We can't do that on our own. But Jesus comes to bring an indestructible joy, a peace that the world cannot give, that puts down uprisings in our spirit and in our world and those that come at us. We want to be those people. So this letter is an example that Christians do real life and that they go through real life with Christ's transforming power. Here's Pastor Jack Hayford summing it up for us. The nature and grounds of Christian joy is what the Philippians is all, letter to Philippians is all about. Resulting not from circumstances or superficial events and feelings and concerns, but in Christ Jesus alone. So where does he start for us in chapter 3? Paul has a really powerful and provocative and surprising message to share with the Philippian church and with the global church. It's this. The life that Jesus calls us to live with him requires us to do not just a one-off, but a constant exchange to trade our stuff for his our abilities for his, our strength for his, our pedigree 
for his. Our experience for his. Our past for the future that he wants to give us. And the way that Paul wraps that up together in chapter 3 at the beginning is, is around a, 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 just a very honest statement around how he is working that out in his own life. That the great apostle, now in chains, with churches and movements of churches that have been started through his ministry and the power of the Spirit, his obedience to the call, his story and his experience and testimony. It's not nothing... But he says that he has resolved, he has come to a deliberate decision to place no confidence in the flesh. By the flesh, he means his own life, his own abilities, everything that makes him him. The flesh for us is the same. It's, it's our mind, our heart, our spirit. It's all that we have and all that we do. And Paul comes here to say, I have determined to place no confidence in the flesh. Have you ever run out of resources or strength in a given situation? You just feel like you, you don't know what to do next. Have you ever run out of, the, of where the plan doesn't work? The, the, the thing you've been investing in, the, the pathway you've been on, maybe in work, maybe in your, your wider life experience, maybe in your, your, your walk with Jesus. And it just feels like it's not worked out. I didn't expect to be here. You've run out of energy and strength and sometimes trust and hope. And, and when the plan and the resources and the experience past is not enough to get you through. Anybody say amen to that this morning? Paul is writing right into that in our lives. Right into the times when we run out of road, run out of room, run out of resources. We feel like giving up perhaps. Or, or perhaps writing into a situation where we are still tempted to believe that we're the answer. That if or a gang of us, a group of us together can do it. That sense of overconfidence in who we are, where we've been, what we've done, our badges, our titles, our, our accomplishments. And Paul nails it for us in chapter 3. He begins to talk about himself. He says, you know, if anyone thinks that they have reason for confidence in themselves, in the flesh... I have more. Then he gives us kind of his pedigree, his background. Just a shorthand version. There are other versions of this in Paul's letters where he talks about his own experiences, his own journey. He says, I have more than any of you, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal under the law, blameless. In fact, Paul was so zealous to please God and serve his people and the, the Jewish religion that he persecuted, not just Christians, but Jesus. Until one day, on the road to Damascus, going to zealously persecute those that were bearers of the name of Jesus, he had an encounter with Jesus himself that changed him forever. And in the light of that, he, he says this, all those things that I had, I now 
count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So this no confidence in the flesh, we place no confidence in the flesh, is not just Paul trashing his background experience. You see how proud he is of it, actually. There's a very human part there saying, hey, I've got, I've got a CV, guys. You want to know where I studied? You want to know what I did? You want to know how zealous I was? All of those things. But it wasn't enough. I was blind. I was lost. I was without hope until Jesus found me. And then that surrender of mine to receive his. Here he is years later. We're not just on the Damascus road now. He's been on many roads. He's been in many moments where just Damascus wasn't enough. He's learned to revisit that place of surrender. As we were singing this morning, I don't know what you're going through and you don't know what I'm going through, but together this morning we said some things in worship. We placed ourselves. And in our most honest inside reflection, I wonder whether like me, there were times this morning where you're saying as you're singing the words, Lord, I really mean this. I need you, Jesus. I'm placing no confidence in the flesh, in me. Paul knew that was not just a revelation for Damascus Road or for conversion time or for Lydia at the moment when she came to faith. It was an ongoing commitment in different seasons to once again resolve, to put no, determine, to put no confidence. We can't do this. We can't reach our neighbours for Jesus and our families for Jesus and our communities and our culture and our world in our own strength alone. I know we know that. There are times when the urgency of the Spirit, the acceleration of the Spirit in a, a transition season begins to remind us as Paul reminds them, guys, it's time to just do that again. Lay it down. I remember as a teenager, there were two really powerful voices into my a uh, couple of years of my teenage walk with God. And one was Andre Crouch as a worship leader who kind of just began, to, my heart came alive listening to gospel music when the, can I say the songs we were singing weren't, weren't quite all that they could have been, some great hymns, but there was a new wave of worship spread around the world. Another was a, a series of messages from healing evangelist Catherine Coleman. I was about 15, 16 when I first heard Catherine Coleman's testimony on a, an old tape. And I remember hearing her talking about, from 1 Corinthians actually, where Paul also writes about coming in weakness and fear, being resolved to come amongst the Corinthian church, not with his own attributes and his own dazzling accomplishments, but with a dependence on the Holy Spirit. Came in foolish, in weakness, but trusting in the power of the Christ. In fact, he says, in, 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 I came with just Jesus, just Christ, this great man of intellect and, and ability. And so, actually, Paul had such a, 
an encounter in Corinth. He was ready to leave the city, but the Lord told him to stay. He was ready to quit, but the Lord told him to stay. Maybe those are very genuine words speaking about a level of of kind of failure that he'd not previously felt, or a, a feeling of failure, a feeling of weakness that he never encountered quite to that degree. But he speaks about it in a wonderful way to the Corinthians to say, in, in our weakness, he is strong. I can't, and Catherine used to repeat that, that scripture over and over again. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things. Not many of us were of noble birth. Not many of us were X, Y, Z in, in society. But God has chosen ordinary people, weak people, fallen people, frail people, often fearful people, but he has done something in us to save us, change us, and in our weakness, he is strong. Catherine's entourage, people that looked after her ministry and the large healing meetings that she would have and evangelism meetings, would say that before she'd go on stage, she was was very dramatic. Long flowing gowns, a a, a wonderful speaking voice, but the Spirit of God used her greatly in healing miracles. And behind the scenes, before she came on stage, this is what they said. She was pacing the hall. She was walking the corridors. They'd leave her to it. They, they felt they couldn't interrupt. And what they'd hear her say was, Jesus, unless you come, Catherine has nothing. Catherine has nothing. I have nothing to give them. You're the Savior. You're the healer. I can't heal anybody. And they, 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 they reflected on that regular rhythm of preparing her heart to step forward. And, and, and there was something, I think that's one, sorry, Philippians chapter 3. I think that's what Paul is talking about. There's a no confidence in the flesh rhythm of worship and surrender that needs to be in many of our lives maybe just rekindled or stirred up. Oh, we may not be going onto the big stage to declare that Jesus is the healer and pray for the sick and, or to, to preach to thousands right now, but we are called as ambassadors and missionaries in every single day, every single situation. And more and more, we're recognizing that the Lord is speaking to the whole global church about the same stuff. This is a time to put down ours and pick up his. This is a time for a fresh encounter with his holiness, a fresh humility and obedience, a fresh seeking for hunger for his word and his ways and his spirit. I'm not saying it from any position of great authority or example. I'm saying it like Paul does to say, hey, we resolve to place no confidence in the flesh. The church can't do it. The badges and labels can't do it. The the great things we've seen in the past, they're not not enough without a fresh move of the Spirit of God in our hearts and lives and a fresh move of our hearts and lives to obey him. So that's my first point. I'm going to go fast, I promise. A new dependence a fresh exchange, no confidence in the flesh, everything rubbish, 
compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. The worth of knowing Jesus. If anybody in the Bible could be expected to know Jesus, who would you pick? John? So close to him in the three years of ministry and incredibly uh, intimate relationship with, with Jesus, seeing things firsthand, eyewitness. Paul didn't have the eyewitness uh, in the same way, but he did have an eyewitness revelation of Jesus who came to him directly and lived with that. Paul, who writes so many of the letters that we have in the New Testament to the churches, forming and shaping much of our deepest theology and our mission, our missiology, how, how, that, that's the way we do the mission of Jesus together. If anybody knows Jesus, surely it's Paul. But what is he saying to us towards the, the end of his life? He's saying something really, really gripping. He's saying this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He goes on to say this, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain him. That I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul, after all these years, is still wanting to know him. To know, all kinds of songs are going in through my head right now. Some that I probably shouldn't be singing in church this morning. About knowing and loving. To know him more. And to know him more. To know him. Paul is still looking to know him more. He's not done with the manuals that he's written and the, he's not content with the courses that he's, he's devised, the ministry that he's had. He's still, it's like he's, he's become childlike again. In his joy of knowing Jesus, it's getting richer. You ever known a, a seasoned veteran saint who the closer they get to heaven, the more they're like Jesus, the more they're talking about the Lord, the more that, it's just like, I remember some characters like that. And Paul seems to be pressing us all to make everything else secondary to knowing Jesus. Because the more we know him, the more we'll be like him. The more we'll be confident and trusting and faithful and courageous because we know him and he's with us and we're with him. There's no doubt that that calling on Paul's life was something he wanted to see the Philippians pick up the church that he loved to know him more and more, to become maybe simpler in their faith the Western church has had so many resources and so many plans and it's still not brought 
the breakthroughs that we've been looking for. We're so rich, and yet we're so poor. And perhaps you, like me, are are realizing more and more as time goes on that the next method and the next plan and the next personality is not going to be it either. But in the midst of that, what we have is so rich and so precious. Jesus is here. Jesus is working amongst us. Jesus wants to use every one of us. And all we have to do is come in fresh obedience and regular surrender to him. And start to put into practice that joyful life, that renewed life, just like other churches past in history have come to those moments too. Where actually it's no longer just about getting through the crisis, but it's about beginning to live out again for a greater cause and a greater purpose. So, no confidence in the flesh. Knowing Christ Jesus, notice he adds in a phrase, my Lord. Really personal. That you would know Jesus, your Lord. That I would know him as my Lord. Not just does he love everybody else, does he forgive them, does he bless them, does he use them, but, but me. I'm knowing that he has called me by name, that he's with me in my daily life, but that he's also calling me to live for a greater cause. How can a man in prison motivate and have anything to say to believers outside from his confines? Well, Paul believes he can, beginning with relationship, but a a word that then is out to the wider world through history and until Jesus comes. His strong appeal is that we would not leave things as they are. We'd get ourselves right with God and we'd get right with one another. Uh, I remember a moment back in the 80s when Pastor Wynn was preaching from Philippians. I can't tell you the date, but I remember it distinctly. Where he got into chapter 4 and there are two ladies that are named, Euodia and Syntyche. He called them odious and soon touchy. Think about it. Odious means smelly, doesn't it? That's that's rude. Soon touchy. You ever talk about people who are touchy? I'll never forget that moment. Can't remember the rest of what he said about them other than this. They're called out. They're clearly women that Paul has known in ministry, believes in. He thinks highly of both of them. And they have good reputation in the church. But right now, they're in conflict. And and everybody in the church knows about it. And Paul gives a pastoral, caring moment. He doesn't say much. There's not the notes of the meeting. There is just this. Urge them. I plead with you. Urge them to be reconciled. To sort it out. And there are other illustrations in this letter, as well as the joy, as well as the love for one another, of the call that we are unified in spirit and in purpose. And that that is going to take some time and some costly things have to be done in us forgiving and responding to one another, reconciling. There are other times when Paul gets even tougher on the church. He says, guys, you need to sort stuff out. And there are times 
when others spoke to him and said, Paul, you need to sort some things out. A man called Barnabas. And he had a falling out over a young disciple. And it took some years. I want to say this. Pressing on is not just about being blind about the issues that we're facing in our lives, in our communities, in our churches. But it is about having a new focus. Paul begins to encourage them to focus on eternal things. We're living in urgent and challenging times. And he has some words about how challenging the challenging times were. And in the midst of that, rejoice. Not just happy singing time, but deep, deep abiding trust in Jesus, bringing joy into, bringing peace into, bringing grace into carriers of that, living with a kingdom mindset and attitude. Let me just read these couple of verses for a moment to you in, uh, uh, towards the end of the chapter. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. Whoa, in other words, we're not just here. We're not just citizens of these cultures and contexts and, and nations. We are citizens of heaven. There's a whole nother dimension to who you are as a follower of Jesus. And Jesus wants us to live for eternal stuff and to live for an eternal cause. And so he begins to Make the call that they would live with a kingdom mindset and call. There's work to do in hard and challenging times. Don't give up. Don't stop. Final scripture I want to pull out. I ask you to, to repeat it as we said it. But this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. You might sound so dramatic, doesn't it? But it's so dramatic that we can picture it. Forgetting what is behind, straining. I think of the marathon runner. I think of the, 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 the athlete. I think of the mountaineer trying to make the summit despite adversity. That's the kind of language. But Paul's in prison right now. He's still hopeful to visit them. He's still not given up on the plan, but he allows the Holy Spirit to rewrite the plan and to look for a sense of faith and courage to follow it. So there is this amazing sense of the call to press on. It's my message title. I wish I had a better one, but... Hey, I got it from a good place. Years ago in the 80s, Bob Dylan, rock, folk, whatever you call him, legend, had a powerful encounter with Jesus. I can't tell you the details of where he's at in, in terms of his relationship with the Lord, but during those next years, he offended all his fans and wrote Christian albums and wrote loads of, of, of songs out of that experience. They're remarkable. And one of them is Pressing On. I listened to it a few times uh, over the last few days. Pressing On. I'm pressing on. You can get some great choirs singing that song if you check it out on whatever platform. Pressing on to the higher calling of the Lord. 
He begins to, in his gravelly voice, get into some of the valleys and some of the obstacles and some of the, the tough steps that we might be going through. But then the gravelly voice rises again and pressing on and pressing on. I don't know how Paul sang. I, get, I don't expect he was much of a singer. Pressing on to the higher calling of the Lord.